Okay, so we're in this series on, uh, on the seventh of our 11 values as a church, and the value is equipping everyone to play their part in the church. And we've been thinking for the last couple of weeks about the fact that we're all unique. Every one of us uh, is uniquely different from everybody else. Natural talent, experience, character, learning, skills, and so on. But also, when we trust Christ, when we say, you know, I, I don't have a plan for eternity that I trust. The only plan I can trust is Jesus' plan, God's plan. That when Jesus died on that cross, he died in my place, and I need him to forgive me, and I want to be part of his family. I want to accept the gift of life that God gives. When, when we trust in Jesus, a whole load of things happen, including the Spirit of God coming to live in us. And when the Spirit of God comes to live in us, he brings a gift. He brings with him a a tailor-made, purpose-built, you-specific gift so that you, now part of the body of Christ, part of the church, have a unique opportunity to contribute and to have a sense of significance. I think that's a wonderful thing that God's done. Even though most of us are probably unsure what that gift is, we maybe have never thought about it. Uh, and and so it you know it takes a little bit of exploring and praying, but but just to think that God wants us to participate. He doesn't just rescue us and then tolerate us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He brings us into his family. And then he says, look, I want you to feel fulfilled. I want you to feel like you're part of something special because you are. And so last week we were thinking about the, uh, I suppose, the analogy of an orchestra with all the different instruments, the brass and the woodwind and the percussion and the strings and all the different instruments within each of those sections. And when they're just doing their own thing, it sounds a little bit chaotic. But when the conductor brings them together, he is able or she is able to, to bring out of that diversity an incredible harmony. And so in that moment, as the music rises, what's happening is that the music itself is being glorified. And we thought about the fact that the Holy Spirit is the conductor in the church. And he's bringing a little bit of you and a little bit of you and a little bit of me. And he's getting it just right at just the right time, all the circumstances, all the different parts of it. So that what happens, even though we may not realize it, is that the church glorifies Jesus. And that means that the church is not necessarily better than other social clubs and gatherings and societies out there, but the church is different, it's unique, because there's nothing else that has the Holy Spirit at work within each person and working to bring everybody uh, together. All the different strengths, gifts, talents, and so on, God is at work doing something truly wonderful. And so what we're thinking about over these weeks, especially in terms of 1 Corinthians 12, is the idea of pursuing our, uh, our gifting, not in any kind of arrogant sense of look at me, but, but Lord, you've, you've gifted me. I want to know what it is. I want to know how you want to use me. I want to know what difference I can make. And we started exploring that in life group last week. If you weren't there, please come this week. It's not too late to jump into that conversation because it's such an important one, thinking about the role that God has for each of us. I suppose you could look at it a little bit like this, that everybody in the church gives to enable the church to function. Some maybe give two hours, some maybe six hours, some maybe 16, some maybe 60. The the point we're making is not that we want everybody to give more hours. What we're saying is that the hours we give, the energy we invest in the life of the church, when when it's 
pointed in the right direction, when it's used in the capacity and the way that God has wired us and made us, the same amount of time or the same amount of energy can do so much more. And to illustrate that, I'm not going to paint a picture with words. I'm just going to play a clip on the screen, which I'm sure you'll see the point, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Thanks, Mike. I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Familiar? Yeah, Chariots of Fire. Maybe uh, some of you haven't seen it, but it's a classic. 1924 Olympics, Eric Liddell, the runner, Liddell, as we would say in this country, and he was uh, fast, and he was a Christian. And he had this tension between going to China as a missionary, which he did afterwards, and running. And I, I love that quote, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. In fact, the way he runs reminds me of the way I sleep, head back, mouth open. I think maybe that's a gift that I have. Melanie would certainly say it is. But, but I guess that's a bit of a picture of what, we, what we're longing for as a church. That you can pour uh, X number of hours into doing something that's a real struggle. It's just hard work. It's just difficult. And I know there's a lot of people doing a lot of uncomfortable things in this church, things you wouldn't choose to do. And we don't want to despise that. We want to thank you for that. It takes an awful lot of discomfort to make a church work. But the ideal, the dream, is for each one of us to to find out kind of what it is that we're wired for and to put as much of that time and energy as possible into that. Because then we can all be our own version of Eric Little, running and feeling God's pleasure. That sense of the, the wind behind you, that sense of when I do this, I feel alive. And that's what we long for as a church, for as many of us as possible, in fact, for all of us, to really feel alive as we're serving him. And so let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because Paul uses an analogy that that really works for us on on some important little details of all this. Uh, I suppose when you look at that clip and you're you're looking at him running against the others, it's quite an obviously competitive thing. By definition, a non-competitive Olympics would be rubbish, wouldn't it? But But think about not so much the competition, but just the human body. That's where Paul takes us in 1 Corinthians 12. The different parts of the body, the many members working together. It's such a simple analogy, but it's a powerful one. And so if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, which is on page 959 in a church Bible, he starts in verse 12 by saying this, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He's talking about the body of Christ, the the people of God. And he's saying there is, in the body, many members united. And then he gives this extended analogy of the human body. And so from verse 14, you'll see a paragraph there. That first paragraph is kind of talking about the many members. And then the next paragraph from verse 21 is kind of talking about the unity of those members. And the thing that we're going to see as we read this is that it refers to body parts or members talking to one another, which obviously doesn't happen, right? But I think it's interesting to think about this and to to go with what the text says and to recognize that actually a lot of the issues in a church aren't explicitly spoken. 
It's the internal feelings, isn't it? It's the I feel this or I feel that that causes us to get upset with one another or causes us to feel inferior or maybe superior. There's a kind of an internal emotional churning within us. And in that sense, I think what he's saying here is an absolutely perfect analogy. So let me read the first paragraph from verse 14. He says, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say... Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so he's saying, look, imagine the foot saying, I'm not a hand, so I don't belong. I mean, think about the hand. The hand is an incredible machine, isn't it? That the hand can do so much. It's so powerful. It's got such fine motor skills. You think of what a surgeon can do with a hand. Just think about the way your own hand does so many different things. It can write. It can gesture. It can sort of communicate on its own, especially if you're Italian. Right? You've, got, you've got an awful lot of communication ability just within a hand and creative ability and power and destructive ability. There's a lot that goes into this. I was just thinking about the fact that all the time, and not literally every second, but regularly, I take my keys out of my pocket and I've got a bunch of keys and in the dark I can manipulate my way through these keys to find the key that I want and get it ready to go for the front door. They couldn't, I mean, to create a robot to be able to do that would be an incredible challenge. Just think of all the feeling and all the sensation and all the the, the clever movements that are going on. The hand is absolutely astonishing. And then there's the foot. It just gets dirty. Don't communicate with it. Most of us don't draw with it or write with it. Really, the foot is very likely to feel inferior to the hand. But lose a foot, and you really feel it. You really feel the the difference it makes. If you lose feeling in your feet or if you have a foot amputated, you've got that incredible sense of loss that, wow, I had no idea how significant my feet were were. Melanie's granddad, who's, who's gone to heaven now, uh, had a friend who had his leg amputated in, you know, in his late 90s. And he was telling us about it one time. And uh, he said, oh, my friend, I forget his name. He, he went to Fargo, which was a nearby city. He left his foot in Fargo. Well, he left his foot in Fargo. What are you talking about? He had it amputated. But you know, that's, that's quite a serious thing. You lose a part like the foot and, and your whole life is changed. Think about the ear comparing itself to the eye. The eye is incredible, isn't it? Our eyes are able to focus, hopefully, long distance and short distance. I did have an eye test this week, and the optician uh, said, the good news is that your eyes haven't changed since last time. I was greatly relieved because I was convinced they were uh, changing quite rapidly. And he said, the bad news is when you turn 43, it's going to go downhill really fast. And I said, 43? I thought it was 40. He said, no, 43. I was like, oh, I'm not there yet. I thought I was in the bad part, but, you know... But actually, the eyes are incredible. 
the ability to focus, to adjust, to light, to, to close up and protect themselves when the light is bright and to open up in milliseconds when the, the light disappears in order to see. Just think about everything your eyes can do in terms of communicating. When people fall in love, they stare into each other's eyes. There's a, a depth to the eyes, isn't there? The eyes can, can cry and express incredibly negative emotion or incredibly positive emotion. And the tears come out. and There's so many things going on with the eyes that it's just, wow. And then there's the ear. Nobody who's in love stares into an ear. And if any liquid is coming out of your ear, that's nothing to celebrate, is it? That's a time to go to the doctor because basically your ears just sit there. They don't move. They don't adjust. They're just there. They seem so insignificant compared to your eyes. But as some of you know, when you start to lose the sense of hearing, you really miss it. Makes all the difference in the world. And it's invisible. When someone goes blind, you can tell. When someone's going deaf, you can't. And actually, the ear may not be as impressive as an eye, but the ear is massively important. And so Paul's point is kind of obvious, isn't it? You might be an ear compared to an eye. You might be a foot compared to a hand, but that doesn't mean that you don't matter. And what he's talking about here with the if the foot should say to, I think what he's describing is the inner talk that we have. I'm not like this person. I'm not as impressive as that person. That person goes up front. That person is musical. That person is organized. That person achieves things. I'm a nobody. And it's very tempting to just retreat and to pull back and to say, I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give. But God put this paragraph in the Bible so that you would know that you do. You may not know what it is yet. You may not be clear on how it works. The world says you've got to be impressive. You've got to be eloquent. You've got to be powerful. You've got to be beautiful, whatever. The world's got a whole set of messages, and we always think, well, I don't measure up to that. But God is not the world. And God says, actually, you are beautiful in my sight because I love you. And you have a part to play and a role to contribute that is massively important. And please don't make the the body of Christ learn your significance by being amputated or by giving up or by backing away. Throw yourself into it. Give yourself. Even if it doesn't seem like it's going to make much of a difference, we promise you, you do. And then he goes from the many members to the unity, from the what if I feel inferior to the temptation to feel superior. Let me read the next paragraph to you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There's a lot in that paragraph. But notice how he begins again with speech, with if this says to that. Now, hopefully we wouldn't say things like this. I don't need you. (laughs) That would be a particularly awkward moment, I'm sure. But there's a danger that we can feel it. 
In Corinth, they had spiritual gifts in action, not because they were spiritually mature, but because they were Christian. And so there were spiritual gifts, and they thought this is a sign of we've arrived. And so in their pride, they felt affirmed by some of their gifts compared to others. And so there was a sense in which they were explicitly saying, I don't need you, you're not on my level because I have the superior gift. And Paul's just ripping the foundation out from underneath that and saying, absolutely not. In fact, when you get to chapter 13, he's going to say, let me show you something really, really important. Uh, So important, I'm going to give a whole chapter to it, although he didn't do chapters. But the whole chapter is love, 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 love is critical. Even if you've got all the gifts, even if you can speak in the tongues of men and angels, even if you have faith to move mountains, if you do not love, you're nothing. Love is the overriding, uh, kind of overarching, undergirding DNA of the body of Christ because that's what God's like. Our God is a God of love and therefore his people should be incredibly loving, not proud and arrogant. But there is going to be that temptation. In a fallen world, there'll be the temptation to feel superior or to feel inferior and sometimes to manage both within the space of two minutes. It's amazing what can go on inside us, isn't it? Oh, I wish I was like that. Oh, I'm so much better than that person. And there's this kind of bizarre inner talk. And Paul says, no, no, hang on a second. Like, how, How's that going to work? In fact, he goes on to say from verse 22, no, look, the way that God's arranged the human body says that, that there isn't kind of this conflict within the parts. Um, Mary Bagger gave me a book that, that, that she pointed out a page and it was talking about the fact that body parts don't talk to each other but there is at a more focused kind of small level the propensity or the potential I should say for an individual cell to either do what it should or to rebel and you think about that when something is going wrong in the human body it's because an individual cell at some level is being independent a parasite or a cancer cell When the body starts fighting against itself, everything stops functioning the way it should. When a cell decides, I'm going to make myself the big deal around here, it grows and it grows and it kills. And so actually within the body, there is this potential for incredible damage to be done if we're not united. But what does Paul say here in this paragraph? How does he address the need for unity among God's people? Well, three things. First of all, he says that we honor one another. We want to be a church where people are honored. Not just the obvious ones. It's easy to honor the upfront stuff. But what about the people that get here early to set everything up? How are we going to honor them? What about the people that do work behind the scenes? What about the people that are out doing the kids club and missing church in order to serve the little ones and to serve us? What about the the life groups and the conversations and the interactions and the encouraging text messages and the getting together or the praying for someone? What about all the things that are going on that we don't see during the week that make the church what it is? We want to honor not just the obvious, but the less obvious. And I suppose in a sense we can do it from the front and we try to do that. You know, we sort of every now and again try to point out different things or, or whatever. But actually it works much better when we honor one another. When you see someone who's done something and you thank them for it. When you recognize that somebody has sacrificed. When you say to somebody, hey, I really appreciate that about you. 
And we want to be that kind of a community where we honor one another, not just up front, but one-to-one. He goes on and he talks in, where are we, verse 25 or so, uh, that, um, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And so for the sake of unity, we want to honor one another. We want to care for one another. Reaching out and treating each other as important. Looking for ways to encourage and build up and help. And I suppose there's a danger when we talk about this that we could just get like really idealistic. Almost kind of painting a picture of the church like a utopia when it isn't. If you've been around the church for about 10 minutes, you know it's not utopia. You know that that actually we fall short. We fall short in honoring people. We fall short in appreciating people. We can so easily make people feel like they're not being cared for. I've probably let you down at some point or maybe many points. Maybe you've let other people down in your row or or in this room or who are not in this room. And, And actually, when we stop to think about it or put the church under a microscope, we go, oh my goodness. It really is messy, isn't it? really is difficult. How do we care for one another and honor one another when all of us one another's are sinful? When all of us are inadequate in some way? When every possible interaction has some element of of kind of sin-stained fallenness in it? I suppose it's it's just important for us to, to stop and go, hang on a second. We can't move forward pretending that the church is just this gloriously good thing and not recognize that for it to be glorifying Jesus and for it to be working well, it's going to take a lot of work. And I don't mean the serving in ministry work. I mean the dealing with issues work. It's going to take interactions. It's going to take forgiveness. It's going to take conversation. Uh, Two, three, four, I forget now. Early on in the church, we watched a talk by Andy Stanley. Uh, and if you were there at the time, you'll remember it. But I just want to remind us of what, that's, what he said in that message. Because he talked about the fact that there are times where we have expectations and then we have experience. And they don't quite meet. That is, you may have the expectation that somebody will be somewhere at a certain time to do a certain thing because they said they would. But then your experience is that they're late. Or you may have the expectation that someone's going to care for you and encourage you and and reach out to you and then your experience is that they seem to ignore you. You may have the expectation of, of something big or something small, but the experience doesn't match up and there's this gap in between. And and so Andy Stanley talked about what do we do? Because that is inevitable in the life of a church. In any community, in any family, there will be expectations and there would be experiences and they'll sometimes be poles apart. What do we do when there's that gap? It's tempting, isn't it, to pull away and say, well, I don't need you either. It's tempting to go and gossip and tell others how much that person has let us down or how disappointed we are with them for prayer, of course. It's tempting to to kind of retreat or attack or go to somebody else or whatever and do all sorts of things that we can do as competitive, fallen, self-protecting humans. But what he said in that message that was so helpful was he said, no, when there's a gap between expectation and experience, that gap needs to be filled with trust. That's how a community works. You believe the best. You trust that there's a reason why your experience didn't match your expectation. You say, well, that's all very well, but... 
But what if I can't trust? What if it keeps on happening? What if it feels like something serious has happened? What if there's a a sin involved? I can't just trust. I mean, the Bible does say love covers over a multitude of sins. but, But what if I'm struggling to trust? Well, if you can't fill the gap with trust, then you need to talk. Not to anybody else, to the person that's let you down. It could be me, it could be someone else in the room, could be your spouse, could be your children. Probably will be family members before too long, and it certainly will be church members before too long. What do you do when there's a gap? Fill the gap with trust. And actually bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. That's like the WD-40 that keeps the church running. Bearing with and forgiving, bearing with and forgiving. It probably happens way more than we realize. But there are times where that's not enough and there's still a gap. And when there's that gap, we've got to have the courage and the faith to go to the person and say, here's my expectation, here's my experience, and I want to trust you. Can you help me? That's the beauty of of that message that, that we kind of took to heart as a church early on and I think became part of our sort of DNA early on because it's such a simple thing, but it's so profoundly helpful because when you go to someone, not attacking, not confronting, not rebuking, but I want to trust you, can you help me? One of two things can happen. Either they'll give you some truth that you didn't realize Oh, the reason I wasn't there on time was because such and such happened and, you know, oh, cool, great. That helps me trust you. The reason I you know, didn't do this was because such and such. And Okay, great, thank you. Really appreciate it. Sorry I had to raise that, but I just, I just don't want there to be anything between us. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Or you say, hey, there's this gap and I, you know, I want to trust you. You're right, I'm sorry. I said I would do that and I didn't do that. I dropped the ball. I didn't follow through. I've sinned. I, I was wrong. I, you know, will you forgive me? Yes, I'll forgive you. And you see, when the, when the apology and the confession, the repentance, the forgiveness comes in, then that trust is rebuilt. And so whether the person sinned or not is not really the issue. When there's a gap, you either fill it with trust or you go to them so that you can fill it with trust. And I just think that's really important to kind of bring that into the mix because Paul here is talking about a church that's divided. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't even take things that are explicit to divide. It can be the inner churning of our own emotions. That person seemed to ignore me. I'm going to pull away from them. That person didn't express care in the way that I wanted to have it expressed. I'm going to attack them. And there can be this inner struggle in the life of the body of Christ. And I think if we're going to express care for one another, that's a part of it. To not say, oh, it's utopia, everything's easy, because in this world, it's never easy. Unity is never accidental. It takes constant, continuous work for the body of Christ to be united. And so we honor one another, we care for one another, and then verse 26, we rejoice with or suffer with one another. We see that, don't we? When a baby is born, everybody celebrates. When somebody's going through a tough time, everybody carries a little bit of that round with them. When somebody's involved in a car accident, there's a, oh no, I know what that's like. Oh, I feel so bad for that person. And the life of the body of Christ is just like the life of your body. It's easy to think that just a little part doesn't affect everything else. Well, break a bone and see how it affects everything. Broke my little finger, like I said the other week. 
For a few days, my whole body felt not quite right. Maybe you've had keyhole surgery and then everything doesn't feel quite right for a while. When we suffer, we suffer together. When we rejoice, we rejoice together. Why? Because God has made this body of Christ a group of individual members, everyone unique, but united. Now, I suppose the danger with this kind of a passage and this kind of a message is that it could almost feel like, yeah, you're right, we've got to try harder to be united. Yeah, yeah, good reminder, you're right, yeah, I do need to, I need, I do need to address that issue. And, and that's all very good, but it's all very down here, right? It's all very us. And, and I, I don't want us to go away from this message thinking this is a pragmatic suggestion to function well as a, as a community of Christians, because actually that would be to miss the point of the entire passage, I was trying to think of an analogy to go with this. And, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what I came up with, and it's, not, it's probably not the best ever, but it's all I've got. But verse 12, we read already, the body is one, has many members. All the members of one body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 13, he says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What he's saying there is, is, you know what? We're part of the body of Christ. That's an incredible privilege. We were baptized into the body of Christ. That is, we were kind of immersed into the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God has come into us. It's kind of two sides of the same thing. It's describing this union that we're brought together with one another and with Jesus so that we are the body of Christ. And often we can forget that. We can get caught up in the here and now, I'm better than you, you're better than me kind of stuff. Imagine two people stood next to each other. North London, 1985, summertime. And they're standing next to each other and the camera is zoomed right in on them and somehow you can hear the thoughts that are going on inside of them. I wish I could clap as loud as this person. At least I can sing in tune. This person can't sing in tune. When I did the Union Jack on my face, I got it straight. That's a bit skew if. You know, uh, if, if, if you ever want to do face painting, come to me, not to this person. And there could be all of this inner churning going on. And as you zero in and you look at that, you think, wow, that sounds quite serious. There's lots of tensions between these two people. Face painting and, and singing and clapping and volume. And, and then the camera pans out. And you see that they're not just standing alone. They're in a crowd. And they're not just in any crowd, they're in a momentously significant crowd. They're part of the 72,000 people at Wembley for Live Aid. And the camera pans out and you realize, my goodness, this is a global thing. It's 72,000 at Wembley, it's 100,000 at Philadelphia. This thing is being broadcast across the world, 14 satellites. It's the biggest event of all time at this point in terms of broadcasting. And there's potentially over a billion people watching as they're clapping along with Queen and Radio Gaga, that iconic moment. Now, what do those people talk about now? I wasn't there, I was nine but I would imagine that people who were at Live Aid in 1985 don't often think, you know what, I wish I could clap as loud as that person next to me. At least I was in time. I, I, that's probably not the conversation they're having, but I suspect it wouldn't take long for them to tell you I was there. I was part of that. That was a historic moment in terms of famine relief, in terms of global media communications, in terms of music. There were so many firsts, and I was there. It was monumental, and it was momentous, and it was special, and I was a part of something. 
What do you think we're going to be saying for all eternity? When we look back on time and we look back at what God has done at Trinity Chippenham and the church in this world, we're going to look back on history and we're not going to be saying, you know what, I wish I was more gifted. I wish that other person was, was not so capable or I, I wish that I didn't struggle with this or I wish that we didn't compete in that way or if only I could have, if, if only I was in tune or whatever, you know, if, if only, if only, if only. I don't think we're going to be looking back on this time and saying, oh man, that's so disappointing. See, the things that we can get caught up with now on a horizontal level can be so little. But for the rest of eternity, every time time is mentioned, we're going to take a deep breath and say, I was part of that. I was part of that. I was part of what God did in the world. Jesus came and then the body of Christ and then the gospel spread and... and, I was part of that through my prayers, through my giving, through my participation. I was the guy that that set up the chairs there. I was part of that. And you see, that's the beauty of the passage we're looking at here. It's not just a pragmatic suggestion. It's an invitation to recognize that we're part of something. That by the Spirit of God working in us, we have something to contribute to the life of one another and to the history that's being made through the church in this world. Let's lean into that. Let's make it our goal over the next weeks with life group, but then with conversations as the months pass. Let's lean in and say, Lord, I want to pray about this and I want to give myself away. I want to talk to people and encourage. I want to have the conversations that need to be had. I want to experiment. I want to try. I want to get involved in things. I want to go, oops, that really isn't for me. Would it be okay if I back out yet? And you know, maybe I'll try this. and, And then maybe instead of competing with one another, we can gradually find the place that's designed for us. And we can feel the pleasure of God. God smiling on us as we serve him. And that same amount of time, that same amount of energy, whatever it is we have to give, can just lift because we're doing what God designed us to do. That's the goal. That's what we long for. And if there's anything we can do to help that, anything we can do to facilitate that, any uh, any training or anything that you think, oh, if the leaders would just do this, it would really help, please talk to us because we will do anything we can But honestly, a lot of it's on us, chatting with each other, encouraging one another, praying together, being willing to serve and get stuck into the life of the church. For all eternity, we're not going to look back and stress about the struggles. We're going to say, I was a part of something special. Let's pray.